Well, thank you so very much. Good morning. So good to be able to worship our Lord together. Those that are joining in now online, welcome. So good to be with you as well. We're turning in our Bibles to Acts chapter 25. And in Acts chapter 25, we're continuing a series we began in 2019, making our way now into this chapter that deals with, in particular, a believer's relationship to the civil government. You will find now that Paul is being held in custody, and he's having to deal with Roman officials. So we're going to be exploring this morning, now again, matters pertaining to Christianity and the political landscape and how you navigate the times in which we live in a way where we can look back upon Paul's experience and be able to gain a greater perspective on the ways in which Christianity can be lived out in a very impactful way. So if you'd find your way now in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and take it down today to verse 12. And here we find these words now. Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Well, after he stayed among them, not more than eight to ten days, he went to down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many unserious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, <coughs> said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there to be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And this is extraordinary. I mean, this is going to be an amazing experience to explore this. How to do Christianity 
in a changing political landscape and do things in such a way that bring God glory and honor. Let's look to our Lord now in prayer. And Father, what we want to do as we continue in this series of Acts, we want, Father, at all times to bring glory to your name. We've been establishing through this time period that you are uppercase authority. Governments are lowercase authority and they're not to be reversed. You always have the upper hand and you reign. We've also established that we are called to provide changeless truths in such changing times. Just as Paul did, so should we. So for people who feel threatened by change, who find degrees of anxiety and angst when they look at the landscape of this world in general, the nation in particular, I pray now that there's going to be a settled peace. We acknowledge once again that three days later Jesus Christ was raised from the grave and that is he who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And nobody else is seated there but him and him alone. So, Father, these moments are important. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As once again, we've come here now to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite anecdotes that comes out of the time period in which Calvin Coolidge was president of the United States was when he was walking with a, a friend, a senator, uh, across the White House lawn. And the senator, wanting to tease Coolidge, pointed to the executive mansion and asked him facetiously, well, and I wonder who lives there? The answer was classic. Nobody, replied Calvin Coolidge. They only come and they go. Changeless truths for changing times. Only one is seated at the right hand of the Father. Lowercase authority figures come and they go. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he alone reigns. This is something that the Apostle Paul knew firsthand because he was confronted with the risen Savior on the road to Damascus as he was attempting to use his authority to capture people of the way, Christians were known at that time, and bring them back to the authorities in Jerusalem to have them sentenced. But God has the upper hand in this. And what I want to do this morning is to look at the whole aspect of changing political climates. Asking the question, how can a believer function effectively and live wholeheartedly for the Lord in the midst of it all? And I want to draw out this morning three significant guidelines that I see here in this passage. 
that are being modeled by the Apostle Paul when his life was being threatened and when he appeals to, to Caesar, bearing in mind Caesar was none other than Nero, who did not hold to the sanctity of human life. How then, how then do you go about living life, Coram Deo, before the face of God? Three guidelines come out of this passage I want to draw out for us this morning. The first flows out of verse 1 down through verse 5, that whenever the political climate changes, followers of Jesus Christ should, number one, should, number one, be alert to any, to any renewed efforts for thwarting the gospel. And the gospel is the sum total of God's truth for humanity. So now, you and I pick it up at the beginning of verse 1, and we're introduced to a man by the name of Festus. And you say, well, Gary, let's fill in the blanks. We've got to get an understanding of this man. He is now the governor. Governors in the Newer Testament. He was a governor. Felix had been a governor for eight years, from 52 to roughly about 60 A.D., after which Festus appears on the scene and, and rules for about two years until he dies in office. They come and they go. They come and they go. But what's interesting out of all this now is that Felix had been called back to Rome to stand before Nero because he had been heavy-handed in the way in which he had treated the Jews. And there had been a recall, so to speak. Recalls are not only found in California. They're also found here in this setting. And so now, Felix is on his way, and he is being replaced. And he's being replaced by Festus. And Festus is new on the scene. And whenever somebody's new on the scene, they're going to have to do a crash course on what it is they're getting themselves into. So what does he do? Well, he knows, he knows that there has been unrest in Israel. And so where is the epicenter of it all? Jerusalem. Where then should he go with sleeves rolled up? Jerusalem. So now, it's only three days, but after three days, Festus has arrived in the province. He goes up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now, bear in mind, Caesarea is in the, in the northwest corridor of Israel. It's on the Mediterranean. A little later, we'll look at a map. Jerusalem is more in the southeast, yet he is going up. So we're not talking going up geographically. We are talking about going up topographically. He is going up in a hilly setting as he makes his way into Jerusalem, which is the place where the Jews found their sense of authority. What does he want to do? Well, he knows that the prior governor had his hands full with the Jerusalem people. So he's going to find a way now with his capacity and his abilities to be able to relate to and negotiate with these individuals. Makes his way up to Jerusalem. We see it here from Caesarea. And who's waiting for him? Well, you're up to verse 2, aren't you? And in verse 2, we are told the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. Pause. Paul has been in custody in Caesarea under Roman authority for two years. 
during this time, these guys have not had their way. They have not been able to be able to see their dreams come true. But now there's a new sheriff in town. There is a new governor that is found here in Israel, a Roman governor along the lines of a Pontius Pilate, along the lines of a Felix. His name is Festus. He is known to be more fair-handed than Felix, who is more than willing, in fact, anxious to take bribes and skew justice. So now this man comes representing the best forms of Roman law, makes his way up up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, who's waiting? The lowercase people who assume they've got uppercase authority, chief priests, principal men of the Jews, they lay out their case against Paul. For two years they've been waiting for their moment. For two years Paul's been in custody. Something is simmering beneath the surface. They want to now renew their efforts to thwart the movement of the gospel to the Gentile population. So what do they do? They urge him, in verse 3, asking a favor against Paul. That he summon him, Paul, to Jerusalem. But this is a ploy. This is extraordinary conspiracy planning. There's a plot unfolding because you'll notice after the hyphen these words because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. The religious leaders who were very much acquainted with the Ten Commandments knew very well the commandment regarding not murdering Yet nonetheless, they see this as politically expedient and probably could find a way to rewire their thinking to make this pleasing before God. Beware of the deceived mind. So now, what I'm saying here at this point is that this is a religious lobby. But not all religious lobbies are Christian-based. Not all religious lobbies are Christ-centered. Not all religious lobbies bring glory to God or are adopting his will, his plan, his ways. So now, what they're going to try to do is to manipulate the new governor on the scene to be able to have Paul put to death, but there's only one problem. While in custody, two years prior, we are, we're told in Acts 23, verse 11, the Lord stood before him, Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Which means that God's promise supersedes their plot. And it's always the case. They want to ambush him. They want to kill him on the way. The religious authorities do. The religious unbelieving authorities want to. Make your way into Europe some point. Make your way into a setting where it's shown this picture by Stanley Berkeley. It's entitled the, the Hidden Danger. There's a hidden danger here. Paul at this point's not totally informed on the subject, but he's not surprised by the schemes. 
In this picture, the hidden danger deals with an interesting event in history known as the Battle of Waterloo. Napoleon against Wellington. Battle decides the fate of Napoleon. All of Europe is now, is now hanging on a thread. Who's going to win? Throughout the day, Napoleon has kept his famous cavalry in reserve. Best soldiers in the world. The old guard, they were told, called. But now, Napoleon, seeing the issue, is going against him. Wellington was gaining the upper hand. At last, he gives the order and hurls the cavalry up against the British forces. I want you to get a sense of the picture now I'm describing. As Napoleon's forces make their way breakneck speed, seemingly invincible, get this, there was a dip in the road, a sunken part neither they nor Napoleon knew, but Wellington had taken advantage of and he'd filled it with his sharpshooters. So as the line after line after line came forward, they met unexpected volleys of artillery. One went down, another went down, another went down, until the fire was too deadly and the lines then reached their force, was spent. As one historian puts it, Waterloo was lost. The fate of Napoleon in Europe was decided by a dip in the road an ambush by that hidden danger on which Napoleon had not counted. This one weak spot ruined him and turned victory into defeat. God is sovereign over the dips in the road. God is sovereign over the dips in your road, your path, your life. This religious lobby force at this point has wanted to create an ambush. But God has other plans. God has already made a promise. Paul is to make his way to Rome, which means he can't die there on the way to Jerusalem. Now, what does this mean for Festus? who would be somewhat unaware of the, the, of the mechanisms and the schemes of the religious authorities there in Jerusalem. You would think they would want God's will. They're talking religiously. Ponder how God has used secular authorities. There was an emperor at the time when Jesus Christ was born, Caesar Augustus. A decree is issued, and as a result, all these people go back to their towns, including Joseph and Mary, to be registered in Bethlehem to fulfill a promise that was made in centuries prior. Ponder how God used civil authority, Pontius Pilate, along with a king, King Herod, along with a deceiver, Judas. And in this coalition, Jesus Christ was taken to the cross. But you see, God reigns, and three days later, Jesus is raised from the grave. Why? Because God has already made a promise in Psalm 16 regarding the resurrected one. Now, here we have another situation. And we've got a civil governor, 
He's meeting with the religious authorities. You would think at the surface level that God's hand would be upon the religious authorities, not the secular. But you see, God reigns. And he will use whatever means that is necessary according to his glory and our good to achieve his purposes all in due time. So he is now guiding Festus in the way in which he will respond to this religious lobby. And you pick it up here in verse 4. Man's not naive. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he puts it on them. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the men, let them bring charges against him. Well, now we've got to get our bearings, don't we, as we always do, week by week. So now, what appears on the screen at this point is a map. And this map allows us to then be able to understand where, where Felix, excuse me, Festus it was. This was his jurisdiction. And furthermore, here's Jerusalem. He is going now, he is going southeast. And now he will return back to Caesarea, right on the Mediterranean. Notice the name, the word, the title, Caesars, in the midst of the name Caesarea. It's by the sea. And to get a, a sense of what it looks like, look at the next scene that appears here. And so here's the Mediterranean, Caesarea Maritima, and this is the setting in which the Apostle Paul then would have been held custody for two years. You see, Paul had to wait. And as we've said last week, waiting is the rule not the exception to the human experience, the Christian human experience, which means part of the test of trust is the willingness to trust God in the times of transition, in the times of the wait, which means you're going to have to give God, if, forgive me for saying this, the benefit of the doubt, if you don't necessarily see immediate intervention what it is you're dealing with at this stage, at this point in your own personal life. Now, with that in mind, we're dealing here with something of high significance. We're on then to the second, the second guideline that I see emerging here out of these verses. You're back to the text at this point that whenever the political climate changes, followers of Christ, Jesus Christ, should, number two, be able to defend believers against false claims. And sometimes the believer has to defend himself or herself against false claims. They're coming. These ones who will accuse Paul, they're making their way now. They're making their way to Caesarea. And they're going to make false accusations. Have you ever had false accusations delivered against you? Have you ever explored in the scriptures how God's not timid with false accusations? God can even use false accusations. 
He used them to allow for Jesus Christ to go to the cross. They thought they had the upper hand, but three days later, Jesus was raised from the grave. The Jewish authorities think they've got the upper hand. They're going to go and they're going to, they're going to make their case known there. We've got a new governor on the scene. He doesn't have the experience that we have. He doesn't have the perspectives we share. What's going to happen? You pick it up now with me in verse 8, don't you? And as you make your way into verse 8, what you find is that he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, which means then he's getting a lot of perspective as to where they are coming from. The lobbyists are there and they're intense. They have had their, their desires suppressed for a period of time. And when political changes occur, be very much alert to what I will call suppressed frustration. Where God wants to advance his kingdom purposes. But those that are opposed to the advancement of God's kingdom purposes look for their opportune moment. So he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days. Paul does not know this at this point. He's been held in custody for two years. Went down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat on the tribunal. There are tribunals, if you follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, there's a tribunal, let's say in Corinth and elsewhere, where decisions are made by Roman authorities. Well, now he positions himself on the tribunal. This is the place where the decisions are to be made. Justice is meant to prevail. He orders Paul to be brought. Ever been in court? This can be intimidating. You're alone. There's your accusers. False accusations are waiting. They're going to get unleashed. When he had arrived, you can imagine now he looks to the left, he looks to the right. I know these guys. Dealt with them. They've tracked all the way to Caesarea. They've already spent time with Festus. Paul hasn't. Will I experience justice? Who's in charge here anyways? When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. He's encased. He's encircled. And they're bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Luke adds at this point. Luke is a historian. He's a physician. He's a historian. He knows the information. He digs deep into this. He's diagnosing the scene. What you have to bear in mind is that in a setting such as Caesarea, when you take your seat, the tribune, you will have documents of cases that have been decided, cases that have been argued. He would have had Paul's case under the prior governor before him. This is why now Luke is able to tell you, able to tell me they could not prove, and so now what he is now looking for, where's precedent? 
Where have decisions made in prior times that have direct bearing upon this particular case? No. Paul does not have a defense attorney, does he? Was he even given advance notice of what he was now going to be facing? He's going to have to respond immediately. He's going to have to be able to think accurately. This is going to be reflexive. But God has allowed this man for two years to reflect and give serious thought to the ways in which God would move him from Caesarea to Rome in keeping with the promise God had given. Is it possible? Is it possible that God is going to use the false accusers, the false accusations, as the means of getting Paul to fulfill the promise Jesus made? You've got precedent. False accusations were made against Jesus before a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Now again, a follower of Jesus. False accusations being made. And Paul is standing there alone, but then again, is he really? You have to verse 8. Paul argued his defense. He's his defense attorney. Very frankly, I think he's the best. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And now, Festus already knows this because he had seen the prior cases. He knows the story. Paul now needs to condense the statements. The documents are at hand. So, Paul has presented well. He's done it succinctly. It's time now to get a visual, get a sense of what is he facing. Look at the painting that appears on the screen. This is a painting, well-known, Paul before Festus, he's encircled, he's got multiple accusers, he stands alone. But is he really alone? Have you ever pondered how God has equipped you to respond with just the right words at just the right time to make a difference for God's glory? He's been held in custody for two years. Does this seem fair? But with that picture on the screen, ponder what happened in 1980, where a young nursing student was brutally murdered in a Chicago suburb of Oak Park. Let Kent Hughes tell the story. Following the advice of well-meaning friends, Steve Linscott, who was a student at Emmaus Bible College, told police about a dream he had had the night of the crime. Oak Park police later arrested him, interpreting his dream account as the roundabout confession of a killer. Later, a jury found Lynn Scott guilty. He was sentenced to 40 years in prison. This Bible college student, 
But there was just one problem. He was innocent. Only time in prison and numerous legal appeals, a process that lasted 12 years, then Linscott was set free and vindicated. But as he writes, those years undoubtedly brought the most difficult challenges Linscott will ever face, separated from family, wondering if he had somehow brought all this on himself, and why God had allowed this to happen. Surviving prison violence. These were tough years. Yet years of growth and growing awareness of the goodness of God, for as Lynn Scott would eventually put it in his own words as a testimony, I have come to realize that we cannot judge God's purposes, nor where he places us, nor why he chooses one path for our lives as opposed to another. The Bible itself is replete with accounts of divine action or inaction. That at times doesn't seem fair. It does not make any sense except viewed in the light of God's perfect plan. Why thousands of Egyptian children were massacred while a baby Moses was spared. Jacob was a liar and a thief, yet it was he, not his faithful brother Esau, who received the blessing of their father Isaac and God. On one level, it makes no sense that God would allow his son to die for the sins of humankind, but God has a plan. God, you see, has a perfect plan, even when the plans of others around us seem so unfair. Ever been there? There's only one seated at the right hand of the Father, the sinless one, Jesus Christ. He faced the accusations and allowed the accusations to be turned into an, up, an achievement. Three days later, raised from the grave. Be savvy. Be alert. Be alert to any renewed efforts for thwarting the gospel. Number two, be able to defend believers against the false claims. And sometimes you're going to feel like you've got to do it alone. But you're not alone. God breaks in. Well, you're up to the third guideline. You're doing good. Back to the text. Because now... Thirdly, when, whenever the political climate changes, followers of Christ should, thirdly, be aware of legal rights needing to be claimed. Paul would help us to understand very, very well the role and the value of understanding lowercase citizenship and uppercase citizenship as it relates to lowercase authority, government, and uppercase authority, and God, because as he would write to the Philippians, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, for many, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, 
Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. What's going on in Paul's mind now? Now he's being encircled. He has made his defense. How will Rome decide? New governor in town. Festus. Verse 9. But Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. Why? They were the ones that got Felix, the prior governor, exported, sent back to Rome. They were the ones that spent time with Festus, making their case. He doesn't want another uprising. So Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor because Rome was known for Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And they established it through their military and their judiciary. Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor said to Paul, in the form of a question. Now, it appears to be um, an appeal for justice. Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? How would you have responded? Paul's savvy. Again, I want to make an argument that Christians need to be God-centered and worldly savvy. Know the scriptures, but know the times. But Paul said, and I can, can't, you, can't you just see this, the courage, the grit. I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I can imagine now Festus is just swallowed hard. He's being put on the spot. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Court documents, everything's in front of him. He's got the history, precedent. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing on to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them I appeal to Caesar. People, that's Nero, who fiddled while Rome burned. Remember that line? Blaming things on Christians. It's time for consultation. Now, I can't imagine the thought processes going on in the accusers' minds when they thought they had the upper hand. And here's Festus, who thought he created an either-or situation, but he is now about to experience what Paul provides as third-way thinking. Instead of Caesarea or Jerusalem, why not Rome? And with a smile on his face, thinking, that's what Jesus promised me? He took a deep breath. In verse 12, when Festus 
Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you shall have appeal, appeal, to Caesar you shall go. Bear in mind then that before Paul was, was saved on the road to Damascus, he was a Roman citizen at the time of birth. So he has now the right to appeal. He knows his legal rights. He knows the biblical truths and he knows the legal rights. He understands uppercase authority, understands lowercase authority, and he's not about to get ambushed. Chosen people, Dr. Mitch Glazer. Dear Gary, I once led an outreach at a messianic concert on the University of California, UCLA campus. School is one of the largest Jewish student populations in California. And that day, a few school buses of students from the large Orthodox Yeshiva, that's the Jewish parochial school in L.A., also came to watch the performance. Well, it turns out that the teachers and the rabbis from the Yeshiva were there to protest what we were doing with the hopes of persuading the Jewish students at UCLA that they should look further into their traditional Judaism rather than considering Jesus as Messiah. So as the music began, a couple of other adults in the crowd began to shout and cause a ruckus. I recognized these men were from the Jewish Defense League, the JDL, a radical organization that uses violence in order to protect Jewish people from anti-Semitism. I have to know where they're coming from. Get this, in the midst of our event, one of these men shouted, Believing in Jesus is like eating a ham and cheese sandwich at a bar mitzvah. Though this made me smile. He's a Messianic Jew, you know. I took this statement very seriously. It shows just how wide the chasm between Jewish people and Jesus really is in the mind of many Jewish people. And he writes as a Jewish man. The whole experience reminded me that even though most Jewish people who are religious oppose our faith in Jesus, there are others who are seeking, some who are curious. Sometimes the gospel goes out with great power in the face of opposition. Let me say it again. Sometimes the gospel goes out with greater power in the face of opposition. And three days later, the grave was emptied. And so a president of the United States is walking with a senator across the grounds when the senator points to the executive mansion and then asks the question with a smile on his face, wonder who lives there? To which Calvin Coolidge responded, nobody. They only come and they go. And he paused. And as a believer, went on to say, but Jesus reigns. Let's stand together. And so, Father, for people that are so overwhelmed by change, so overwhelmed by lowercase authority that emotionally they've allowed that to become the uppercase authority of their emotions. We want to put things in order. Government is lowercase authority. God and God alone is uppercase authority. 
Yes, we live in changing times. But the authority of your word provides us and equips us with changeless truths to address the changing times. And for this and this alone, we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.